Howdy. Uh, this here old show may contain some cussing, some uh, discussions of a non-biblical nature, and if that sort of thing does not sound like something you'd be interested in listening to, then I would suggest you turn around right now, fella, and uh, just head out the other way. Saloon's down the street. They got some nice girls there. They must be destroyed on sight! Okay, we're back, and this is uh, episode 75 of They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. I'm your host, Lee Russell, joined by my co-hosts, Daniel Harper and Paul Romali. How are you guys doing? Howdy. I'm doing good. Right on. Um, I, I forgot to... Sorry, uh, that, was, that was me That was me being silent, as is the hero of this film. We're oh, what you did there. Damn. No, not not really going to work long term in terms of uh, trying to do a, a podcast, but you know. We should all just do the silent treatment, the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They must be destroyed on site, John Cage edition. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I just realized I forgot to uh, look up uh, names to give us all this time around. Oh, well, broke the streak. There we go. Well, I'm just got one of us loco and the other tiger. So, I'm yeah. going back with awkward yeah. genitals. <laughs> awkward genitals. So yeah, this is our second to last in our Spaghetti Western uh, series, initial look into it anyway. We're going to be doing uh, Once Upon a Time in the West next week, and technically that bleeds over into October, but all of October is officially going to be horror movies, so mm-hmm. that should be a lot of fun. But uh, I, might, I might just keep uh, Paul Dirty Sanchez Romali. just might just keep that. I like that. I think that's my new one, so just let me know. It fits. It fits. It fits. Yeah. We have one piece of house cleaning to get through. It is from 007E38 on our YouTube version of one of our episodes. It was the Django Kill episode. It says, nice, one of my favorite movies. Uh, you knew what you were talking about. Uh, the other guy seemed a little startled by the violence. I don't know who which one he's talking about here. I felt violated by the violence. <laughs> he says, uh, it's meant to show the horrors of war so it doesn't keep happening. Unfortunately, most people ignored the peace movement and adopted the uh, 80s lifestyle. I sometimes just watch the uh, start of it after a few beers. Thanks for your vids. I used to watch your beer reviews. I'm surprised to see Django. Really rare Western is the last movie by Dennis Hopper if you're into this kind of Western. Personally, I find normal Westerns boring. Yeah, I, I've heard of the last movie. The only Western I was aware of that Dennis Hopper was in though is uh, Mad Dog Morgan, which is like an Australian western from the mid seventies. But uh, he was in the original True Grit. Oh, that's right. Yeah, duh. yeah I was gonna I, say, I, Texas I Chainsaw Two isn't a western, is it? Not really. How about Waterworld? <laughs> he was in Waterworld. That's sort of a western. I guess you could technically call that a western. Yeah, yeah. Drink your own pee. That's a western to me. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, yeah, thanks for the comments. Um, we'll have to look into that. The last movie I have heard of that, but I've never, I've never watched it. So maybe we just have to do a Dennis Hopper episode at some point. Who knows? That would be terrible. I would hate that. <laughs> then we're doing it. Ah, fuck. Yeah. So has anyone uh, watched anything in the last little while they want to talk about? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, I had uh, caught up with the Running Man again for the first time in over a decade. Uh, this is the, I mean, obviously the nineteen eighty seven Arnold Schwarzenegger action flick, uh, based on the uh, Stephen King uh, novella. And uh, man, 
that's pretty much one of the pinnacles of 80s cheese-tastic action, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, it actually, yeah. I, oh, God. It makes me want to watch American Gladiators after it, too. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, like, wasn't American Gladiators basically like, yeah, we're going to do the Running Man, but with the uh, fungi sticks? You know? Yeah, we're just not going to exactly. kill anybody. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's I, no I murder. If they did have really Richard Dawson drunk off his ass up in a podium somewhere, it would have been even better. Well, Rich, Richard Dawson's the best thing in that film. Like, oh, by far, mm-hmm. by far. He's yeah, amazing. Yeah. I mean, but man, have you seen that lately? You know, uh, Yafit Koto, uh, American Cheetah, Maria Conchita Alonso. You know, really, I mean, you know, it, it moves. It's really got some, some nice stuff in it. I mean, it's yeah. basically like the dumbed down version of uh, Robocop. Yeah, you know, yeah. they both came out in the same year, but it is commenting on that same kind of like action movie stereotype. It is kind of like doing some of the same kinds of ideas about violence, but uh, it's it's kind of on the nose, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very very much. It has one thought in its head, and it it, it does it pretty effectively. But um, you know, yeah. But it was a lot of fun. I was happy to revisit it for the first time in a lot of years, and uh, you know, recommend it if you haven't seen it in a while. Uh, go check it out. Yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger, your typical everyday cop who has a thick Austrian accent and is built like a genetic Superman. And <laughs> at least it's not a tumor. Yeah. <laughs> the the one actor I keep remembering is the uh, uh, the guy who does like the operatic singing or whatever. Yeah, he, I he you played, were say that guy. Yeah, yeah, he played Terror in the uh, in the Wanderers, uh, the big uh, the big leader of the Baldies gang. <laughs> I love the Wanderers. We're going to be doing it some at some point on this. Never seen it. Yeah, me either. You, so. you will. You will. Um, <laughs> yeah, Don't uh, threaten me with a good time. <laughs> uh, Paul, have you uh, watched anything you want to talk about? Or The only thing I've been watching lately is a lot of All Hail King Julian on Netflix. i just oh. in a cartoon, cartoony mood. Between My Little Pony and King, All, King, All Hail King Julian, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much swamped. I have no idea what that is. Well, no, some people are just a little bit better than others. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Yeah, I concede your point. Looking for something different in your podcast library? Then why not check out the podcast Under the Stairs? I'm the host, Duncan McLeish, and joining me each week will be a special guest as we examine some classic, old-school horror favourites, as well as some modern classics. That's not to say that we don't tackle some of the, let's say, more questionable entries into the horror genre. And if all that wasn't enough, we have a subset of shows called Baz V Horror, where our horror novice, The Baz, tackles horror in all shapes and forms to see who will come out victorious. So what are you waiting for? The show can be found at podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com and on Stitcher and iTunes. The podcast Under the Stairs is a proud member of Legion Podcast Network. This is Duncan McLeish from Under the Stairs, signing off. Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me what you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know? That the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons. And body counts. Body count. The mathematics of murder. 
and menace. The BB and BC podcast is your source for exploitation film discussion of B-movies. You can find the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio by searching for BB and BC podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly from the show's website located at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Let's go to work. Clytus, I'm bored. What plaything can you offer me today? An obscure body in the SK system, Your Majesty. The inhabitants refer to it as the planet Earth. How peaceful it looks. Most effective, Your Majesty. Will you destroy this Earth? Destroy it. Send Rick and Danny in wool rocket Ajax. So, just destroy it? That's what Ming said. Don't you ever listen? Well, there's no arguing with Ming. Hail, Hail Ming. Ming. Wait! You see those transmissions on the Visua screen? Crow? Nightmare on Elm Street? Chud too? Black Belt Jones? Nightbreed? What's a critter? Oh, I've seen those things. Flash? I guess we could wait a while before the destruction. Yeah, and watch the movies. And talk about them. The Helming Power Hour. Disobedience to Ming. For now. You can find us at Legion Podcast. You can find us on Facebook. iTunes. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. At www. You know what? Just Google it for yourself. Just Google it, you bastages. Helming. Breaking two? Electric boogaloo? Samurai cop? Army of darkness? Flash dance? <laughs> <laughs> We might destroy the planet if it's flashed <laughs> Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Oh, necrophilia. It's a dead issue, man. Don't don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this. No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, Prudes. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in you. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie, jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. Oh, I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could it's get out of it. unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this movie. Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17-year-olds should be watching this movie. Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything that kept Little popping history up. doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you you know, couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped from watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was. How did be a you watch movie. this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops.
so we can move right on to The Great Silence from 1968. I implore of you. Please, stranger, then maybe others will be saved from a death like my son's. Well, I'll be. You'd have told me he was a mute. Well, ma'am, I came by on account of an investigation I'm conducting. Well, you know who the killer is? That's not my way. Would you trust me? Directed by Sergio Cabrucci, written by Sergio Cabrucci, uh, Vittorino Petrelli, Mario Amendola, and Bruno Corbucci. Starring Jean-Louis Trignant as uh, Silence, Klaus Kinski as Loco, Vanetta McGee as Pauline Middleton, Frank Wolf as Sheriff Gideon Burnett, uh, Luigi Pastilli as Henry Polycott, Mario Braga as Martin. Carlo D'Angelo as the governor of Utah, and Marissa Merlini as Regina, and uh, or perhaps Regina. Um, I like Regina better. It's got a ring to it. I prefer it. It, it rhymes with something. Yeah. Jordan. So Daniel, throw right over to your uh, synopsis. Henry Pollockett is a righteous bastard. He's basically the confluence of state and corporate power, being both a wealthy banker in Utah Territory and the local justice of the peace. And one day he has a man named Gordon and his wife killed by proxy. The murder is witnessed by the couple's young child, though, and the killers are kind enough not to outright murder the boy, but merely to slice his throat so that he'll never talk again. A barrel of laughs this film is. <laughs> the boy grows up to be Silence, a professional killer of a sort who works within the confines of the law. He provokes his enemies into drawing first, therefore allowing him to kill them with impunity. As the film opens, he is working alongside a group of outlaws and thieves forced by economic deprivation caused both by the oppressive winter and the evils of capitalism to the outskirts of the town, where they are slowly starving and freezing to death. Holocut, wanting the bounties on these outlaws for himself, employs a group of bounty killers led by a psychopath named Loco to kill them all and bring in the cash. One of the outlaws, a black man named James Middleton, decides he's had enough of the torturous life and goes back to his wife Pauline, after which he is soon killed by Loco. Pauline writes to Silence, begging him to take care of Loco, and Silence decides to take on the task. 
While this is happening, the governor of the territory has decided to try to restore law and order by having an amnesty declared and sends in a brand new sheriff, Gideon Burnett, to take care of matters until he can do so. Burnett is at first a bit of figure of fun, but he's a good, righteous man and eventually proves himself equal to the task set before him. In Silas's attempt to take care of Loco for the lovely Pauline, he ends up in a pitched fist fight against the murderous bounty hunter, who knows of Silas's methods and refuses to draw on him. The fight ends with Silas badly injured and being cared for by Pauline and Loco in jail. While Burnett is attempting to take Loco to the next town for trial, Loco manages to get the better of Burnett, and the sheriff ends up freezing to death in a lake. Loco goes back to town and captures the entire group of outlaws who had decided at Burnett's urging to come down to civilization in pursuit of foodstuff provided by the townspeople and ties them all up in a local saloon. Silence, barely able to stand, confronts Loco over the lives of the outlaws and all is set up for an old-style western shootout Except that one of Loco's henchmen shoots Silence first, crippling his hands, and when Loco does finally pull on Silence, it's a turkey shoot. Silence lies dead in the snow, and when Pauline, who had developed a relationship of sorts with Silence, runs over to tend to Silence's wounds, she herself is murdered just as brutally. Followed by the entire group of outlaws who are left to bleed in the bar as the hired killers ride off into the distance, victorious overall. But subject to the judgment of history, as are we all. Yeah, uh, this is probably one of the most depressing westerns you're ever going to see. I think it's great because of it. Mm-hmm. I will just say off the bat, anyone listening to this, uh, if, if you're taking this as sort of a, like a primer into getting into spaghetti westerns to any degree, you might want to hold off on this one for a little while. Maybe get more familiar with Sergio Cabrucci and, and his, uh, his sort of uh, other films first. But for anybody else, if, you, if you've seen a lot of spaghetti westerns and you haven't gotten to this yet, you really should. Because there's a lot of people out there who say this is probably the greatest spaghetti western ever made, and I'm kind of hard-pressed to argue with them to a certain degree. I'll go over to you, Daniel, first for your uh, sort of initial thoughts on this one. You could easily call this kind of a top five. I'm not saying I would call this the greatest spaghetti western ever made, but it's up there, definitely. Probably Carbucci's masterpiece. Uh, it's uh, bleak as fuck. Watching, rewatching it this time... I was definitely kind of thinking on the, um, you don't necessarily know how this is going to end until it actually happens. I mean, it is, it, it does sort of come out of the blue because as we've been watching all these other gay Westerns at uh, this time, I mean, you, you kind of, you know, like the, the hero is kind of like, Oh yeah, he's kind of injured. He's sort of, you know, he's, he, he's definitely kind of the, um, the long shot in this kind of situation. And we're kind of used to seeing him kind of come out victorious and here it, it, plays exactly the way we kind of play in reality. He's fast, but he can't actually outdraw someone with his hands broken, you know? In a sense, what this does is it acts as this sort of a commentary on Corbucci's on Django, you know? It's very much uh, kind of like, okay, Django was the fun and games version, and now we're getting, like, this is what American history was really like. And in fact, the film kind of ends with a coda, which is really just a, you know, a a text crawl, which really says, you know, (laughs) on this spot, uh, you know, we've got uh, a plaque that says, you know, here all these people died you know sort of thing so you know the the film the genesis of the film was after the uh, the deaths of uh, Che Guevara and uh, Malcolm X I believe and yeah. uh, he uh, was obviously very angry <laughs> about you know, the state of the world at that moment and uh, made this very bleak film that's really about how everybody good gets to die and the uh, evil people get to ride off and make a bunch of money off of killing them and uh, it's it's a masterpiece it's it's a brilliant film I almost hate giving away the ending, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, Paul, what are your sort of initial thoughts on this one? It was different, and it was nice to see snow for a change in a Western. So I really like the atmosphere. I like the overall, it's visually breathtaking a film. In my honest opinion, it was about 20 minutes too long at certain times. It kind of drew out a little bit for me, just to mm-hmm. 
could have got to similar points a little faster, but it was a great film. I do like, you know, as, as Daniel was pointing out, it was really the slime always rises to the top in the end. Kind of a film. Um, there is an alternate ending, I noticed. I did watch that later. And I'm so glad they didn't use it. I yeah. love the ending of this film. <laughs> you know what I mean? And um, now that I've had a little bit of breath of Getty Westerns, there was a little time of, oh, well, I think I know what this is going to happen. I think I know. I don't know. You know what I mean? It, it was really good film. And Klaus Kinsey is amazing in this film, by the way. And yeah. uh, overall, just a good film. The thing about this is Corbucci was, he was a, more of a sort of a radical left-winger kind of guy. If you, if you look at most spaghetti westerns, most of the directors that sort of dabbled in that genre from Italy at, at that time, most of them were kind of some degree of left-wing uh, of a sort because they sort of grew up in the war or era where fascism was basically took over the country and then got defeated. So a lot of these guys were sort of speaking out against not only fascism, but the sort of political structure that supported fascism during the war and got rich off it. And Corbucci is an especially angry <laughs> left-winger compared to a lot of them. He, Although I will say this, uh, to his credit, even though he does put his politics in his films, he does not beat you over the head with it. I mean, you can watch this film without really interpreting the politics and, and going that way with it. I mean, you can still just look at this basically as the harsh realities of the Old West compared to the Hollywood version, which this film does brilliantly as well. It just turns the Hollywood version of the Western and even general in general, most spaghetti Westerns you see, it, it turns that idea on its head where, oh yeah, uh, this gunfighter, maybe he isn't supernatural and he can't kill everybody at the end, you know, like Django did. Maybe if he is outgunned and crippled, he's going to fucking die. And it, it's interesting because the character of Silence is, like Django, he's a flawed hero. This is a guy who isn't too far removed from Klaus Kinski's character. He, I mean, he is a bounty hunter as well. He is a killer for money. And there is this revenge angle, but when you think about it, he already had his revenge before this movie even started. He had already fulfilled his revenge. So he's mm -hmm. just doing this almost psychopathically where he's just on this bent to kill other bounty hunters, even though he is a bounty hunter himself. And I just found it interesting that he's not a supernatural gunfighter. You know, he, he, he is a guy who actually has an unfair advantage because he's using a uh, Mauser pistol, and it is a uh, C96, uh, 1986 model, uh, 7.63 millimeter Mauser broom handle, which is a rapid-fire semi-auto pistol. Mm -hmm. uh, with 10 rounds in it. Uh, although he uses a lot more rounds when he's firing in some of these scenes, by the way, but that's beside the point. But th this is a guy who actually has an unfair advantage in a firefight with a group of people because he can shoot off like several rounds in seconds that would take these guys, you know, a couple seconds. So yeah, it, it's kind of interesting that I think his character kind of, he starts out actually not being any much better than these guys. Although, uh, Klaus Kinski's loco is just like a straight out psychopath. He's just he's just a sadist in that case. But I think the point here that Corbucci's going for is that Silence kind of becomes a hero at the end because he gives up his life for what is essentially a lost cause. He he does the right thing even though it means he's going to die doing it and it's probably not going to help anybody in the end, but uh, he actually takes up a cause and, and sticks to it instead of just being this guy who's being paid to kill people. I don't know what anyone's thoughts are on that. <laughs> it's all bullshit. No, I completely agree with you. It's, uh, it's, it's really interesting. When I started watching the film, I got a sense. I was like, okay, yeah, this guy screwed up, but he's a little bit cleaner than 
most spaghetti western guys I've seen. I think out of all the spaghetti western guys I've seen, this guy's a little bit above some of the filth. Just not as mm-hmm. down as dirty as some are. So, and he's also got an innocence, like a, I don't know, his the the man himself, his character has an almost a strange innocence about him. It might be because of the way he portrays the role with silence. He just has a little bit more of a innocence to him that I feel out of out of his role that he he plays in this film. This is different overall. I get a different vibe out of this film than I do all the other ones that I've seen so far. I don't know. It's hard for me to describe only watching it once and fast forward. Uh, but it's a little different. It's a different – the whole vibe of this film is a little different. But you're using you – know, it is the socio platform. It's interesting to see the big guys were on top trying to like, how about we just make everybody not fight, not kill each other? And then down in the local area is you got the people, the scumbags running the show trying to, to weasel out of it. It has this crazy ass, you know, manifest destiny pioneer vibe at the hell of this whole time you're doing, like you said, this whole socio bad guy versus good guy shit. It's, it's pretty intense. It's an intense film. And I don't think just one watch will do it justice. Uh, this was, uh, I actually had seen this before, actually. Uh, Lee, you recommended this to me like a couple of years ago <laughs> you know uh after i had seen django you recommended this to me uh you know before we ever started the podcast and uh you know so i saw it then and uh, loved it but definitely um i watched it twice this week um in kind of preparation here and with subtitles uh, for me the subtitles definitely help um just to uh kind of get some of the nuance although i did watch a downloaded subtitle file that seemed to be based on a italian version of the film Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, like for instance, Loco is called Tiger, um, yeah. or Tigero in that version. And, uh, some of the dialogue is subtly different. I, I did want to mention that. I'm glad you brought that up. Depending on what version you find of this, if you're lucky enough to find the Italian version with the English subtitles, then that's the one you probably want to go for. There are subtle changes in the English language version of this with the dialogue that's written that kind of changes the context of who the outlaws are that are being persecuted by the uh, bounty hunters. Uh That is kind of weird because it historically doesn't work as well. Uh, Essentially, it it changes these people in the Mormons. (laughs) And, And because the setting of this is 1898... This is 40 years removed from the conflicts between the Mormons when Brigham Young turned Utah into a theocracy for a little while and was killing anybody who decided to go through Utah to try to immigrate to California or wherever. But by this time, the stuff wasn't really happening anymore. Like, there were, there was a peace, and it, it really wasn't uh, an issue so much anymore. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's kind of weird. Like, it's almost this alternate history kind of thing, because there, were, there was no massacre at Snow Hill. Like, this isn't a real place right, right. in America, I right? Mean, I mean, this is... This is I, I think that this isn't supposed to be, like, a particular... I mean, even though it's set in a particular time and place, this is supposed to kind of stand in for, you know, a kind of Western violence, the way we see violence in Westerns where people are killing each other all the time, which yeah. for the most part, Western towns were not violent in this way. The, the violence of the West was violence against Native Americans and against the indigenous, indigenous people. And, you know, the whole Manifest Destiny idea. I mean, you know, we're essentially committing a planned genocide. That's what the going West meant. Yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, Corbucci isn't, isn't pointing in that direction, but certainly, you know, it does. I think you can read the film as sort of a, you know, even though we've basically just cast all white people in this, you know, it is about the kind of the violence of the, um, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, the money delete and the uh, kind of using the power of the state against the uh, kind of small working people. I mean, there's an absolutely a, a kind of fascinating read on it that way. Um, so, so it doesn't, it isn't about like some particular incident in American history as much as it's about American history 
country writ large, you know, just kind of set in this little town. Um, and so I, I definitely just process it that way. I don't like, I never think like, Oh, this has got to be like a real event. I think that what's interesting for me, just going back to, to Silas's character, you know, how we feel about silence does kind of depend on how we feel about the outlaws. Because if the outlaws are kind of seen as, oh, they're kind of bad guys, they're kind of morally ambiguous or whatever, and Silence is allied with them, then we're kind of like, well, you know, Silence is probably not a very good guy. Certainly the, the kind of the uh, impulse that I get from it is that the outlaws are basically starving to death because they don't have any food and they don't have any ability to keep warm. And they're um, basically forced into this situation by their economic deprivation oh yeah well which is caused by lame as a rob you know yeah yeah so so i mean if we if we view them as basically sympathetic and then we view silence as basically working with them then i think silence comes across as i mean he's a bounty hunter but also i think bounty hunters like they are working within the confines of the law you know like yeah he's not he's not just murdering people outright the way well well here's the thing though um from what i took from it is silence at first sees this as a just a great opportunity to kill more bounty hunters because that's his that's his bent right like that's that's his thing right. where he is after bounty hunters because bounty hunters crippled him and killed his father i think eventually as he becomes closer to uh, pauline and sort of sympathizes with her plight he he starts to change his mind a little bit and actually sort of take up the cause a bit more personally it's and of course it's kind of hard to decide whether that's true or not because he doesn't speak a word throughout the whole film <laughs> right. but I think I, I sort of get the feeling that that is the case because he, you know, he sacrifices himself in the end for for this cause. But yeah, the the, the outlaws are treated as they're not treated as bad people. Like they they are sympathetic. They, the first encounter they have with the sheriff, you know, they're pointing guns at him, but they're like, "We'll let you go. We just need your horse because we need to fucking eat it because we're starving mm-hmm. that badly, right?" I mean, so you, you can really kind of sympathize with them. And I think early on, Silence, it's more it's more shades of gray with him where he's being very opportunistic because this is just a great way for him to kill more bounty hunters. And apparently he's been doing this through Utah for years now. Like, he, he is almost like a, a fucking ghost or a legend in Utah at this point, apparently, as, as the movie starts, right? So... Yeah, which again connects us to you know Sabata and, and some of the other mm-hmm. we've seen you know where I mean there, there's a definitely like avenging angel archetype that you see through a lot of these spaghetti westerns in terms of you know it's not just that our hero is good it's that he's preternaturally good you know yeah. you know sometimes and I guess Corbucci definitely saw well you know we'll just give him a, we'll give him a really cool gun you yeah. know he gets a, Django gets a machine gun and uh, you know Silence gets the the Mauser and that's part of the advantage sure okay yeah that's part of what makes them scary is they've got a cool gun you know so yeah but uh you know i do i mean yeah i mean you could say kind of shades of gray but i I think that it's it's easy to push too hard on that i mean all of these characters operate in shades of gray well yeah nobody is really you know lily white here you know well i think and of course that just goes back to the main point of the film that carbucci is trying to go to is that there were no real good guys and bad guys i mean that you see in westerns the good people the really good people were trampled upon and abused and then mm. there's everybody else kind of like cutting out their own little piece of territory you know what do you think about the fact that this film uh, passes the bechtel test oh for um for uh <laughs> it has yeah, two uh, women uh, with names talking to one two, two, two women with names who actually do stuff in the film yeah, yeah. Uh, again i think that goes back to what we talked about earlier in the series that corbucci was actually generally pretty progressive as far as uh, italian filmmakers go as far as you know hey women are people too you <laughs> go figure you know that's a myth 
<laughs> it is in most of European cinema. Yes, I'll agree. <laughs> I mean, I would agree if we do have a, a kind of like morally, you know, kind of uh, about as pure a character as you get is Pauline. She's one of the best actors, you know, in, in the film to me, actually. Yeah, and she, that's, her, uh, she has a great role. Yeah, and that's Vanetta McGee, and she was a very popular actress in the 70s, and incredibly beautiful as well. Yeah. <laughs> this, was, this was her first film. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I definitely she, need to watch some more of her stuff. I'm down for that. Uh, well, we were talking about getting to Repo Man at some point, and she got cast in Repo Man by Alex Cox on the uh, basis of her performance in this film. So Awesome. I actually, the, the name of the film... I didn't know what to expect when I started watching the film. So I started getting into the film, and I'm like, oh, cool, it's in the snow. It's in the silence in the dead of winter and the whole deal. And he's a great shot. He shoots people, and he's like, you know, the death and the silence. Oh, no, he literally just, he doesn't talk. Okay. Like, I was yeah, like, like, the- like, thinking of all these different, like, little ways that the silence and the great silence and the... And all these things, and then I found it's more literal. Than you can also go metaphorical with it as well, though. I mean, like you said, it, it, it is very different from all the other spaghetti westerns where you see this frozen landscape instead of this dry desert landscape. Yeah, shot in the Dolomite Mountains in Italy, for the most part. So they were actually doing on location in Italy here. Big difference, just that it, it looks more authentically in America because of that, as opposed to when you look at all the stuff that's shot in Spain, you can... If you're familiar at all with what the American deserts look like, they don't look like the Spanish deserts at all. But <laughs> but here, yeah, it, it's, it's very good, and it has this very oppressive, claustrophobic feel to it as well. Like, it's just this encroaching... You can almost... If you wanted to go really, like, bullshit deep with this, you could say it's the encroachment of white imperialist manifest destiny that is represented by the snow. You could even say that shit if you wanted to, right? You could even connect it to Bergman if you wanted to, because it's kind of about this sort of existential, uh, moralistic guilt and sin and all that sort of thing. I mean, you can kind of connect it even with that. So, I mean, you know, I, I mean, and I think the film justifies that level of analysis. Oh, yeah. I mean, no, I, 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 that's the beauty of this film, is that you can, you can tackle it at many different levels and come out with a lot to chew on. This is Corbucci's best film. It really is. He fucking just hit everything with this and and the amazing thing is that Corbucci if you watch his films cinematically he's not slick he's not sharp you look at a lot of his shots they come from weird angles sometimes they're out of focus uh, a lot of handheld shit but he just brings a real grittiness and a realness to this and a sort of oppressive claustrophobic feel to this that I think just really works well for the overall themes of the film as well like it just it everything sort of fires on all cylinders for me for this one I, I really enjoyed it I was actually um, the claustrophobic aspect. The, the the winter draws the characters into each other very close a yeah. lot of times. They, everyone's huddled together. Everyone's in the same rooms half the time. And I swore that that sheriff would have been shot a long time ago. <laughs> like I just was like, why are you not just blowing him away? You're all bad guys in this room, even though you're pretending to be, you know, working for the law as a good guy. You're all shitheads. Locos band of bounty hunters. They're all basically representatives of the state, even though they're just basically just a bunch of fucking cutthroats and criminals. So, I mean, the sheriff has to technically work with them and try to keep order and peace. Even he doesn't expect that eventually they're going to turn on him when when he tries to take Loco to jail and, you know, prosecute him and shit. And he's an interesting character because, like, he's, he's kind of played as a buffoon to start with. I think a lot of critical analysis of this, I see even, you know, positive criticisms of this film go, oh, he's just the bumbling sheriff. He's really not that. He's actually a really good guy. He, he just... <laughs> 
he, he's got, I mean, you could also argue he's the real kind of moral center of the film in a lot of ways because he, I mean, he believes in law and order and he, he yeah. you know, he, he's the one actually trying to enforce not just, law, you know, legal justice, but a sort of social justice because he's the one saying like, look, feed the outlaws and your problems will go away. They'll stop he, bothering you. And he, they're yeah, starving to death. You know? And I mean, he's not a sheriff. Like he, he's, he, at the beginning of the film, the governor of Utah is like, they get this guy. He he's just like someone who did very well in the army. He was he's like an army guy, and it's like we're gonna make you share for this place and go in there. He's, and this guy's like, I don't really want to go there because I know you're just using me as kind of a figurehead kind of uh, mm-hmm. symbol of goodwill and shit. And yeah. I need more people than just me if I'm gonna make this work. And then well, that's what I was gonna say. I mean, literally, they were throwing him out to the wolves as a test subject to see how this was gonna work. Yeah. Let's go on out there and just, you know, make sure things work out well. We'll be over there later. And like, um, yeah, just to buy buy time, right? Yeah, I'm not going to get a. We know you're not going to be able to do this, but get out there and do it anyway, huh? You know, and and he tries. And he he tries. And again, that goes to that theme of, you know, you're not going to be able to win, but you do it anyway. You pick yourself up and go. And like, silence does the exact same thing. Silence knows he's not going to win, but he tries anyway. And that's kind of the central theme here of whether you agree with like Che Guevara or Malcolm X or whatever in their uh, in their fights, they gave their lives for it at the same time. Like it's mm-hmm. it's that it's that attitude of not giving up and dying for your cause, even if you know it's doomed to fail, just because you like honestly believe it's the right thing to do. So like e- even if you want to take the political figures out of it and stuff, and it- it's still a pretty universal theme, I think, of the good guys do the right fucking thing, even if they know they're going to fucking fail, even if they're oppressed by society at large, they-, they still fight for what's right because it's the right thing to do. Well, it's pretty interesting that, and, and the, he's not the typical sheriff that you see in these films. He the, he's not fighting these drunkards and these people that come into their his his society, and he's trying to clean it up. The problem and the dangers are in the establishment he's put in. Yeah, not in the outside world he has to deal with. Yeah, the snakes are actually around him, and he and he can't fight the establishment. Well, he's essentially supposed to be a cog in the wheel, but he refuses to be that. Yeah. Well, you can't fight the establishment from within the establishment, you know. Exactly. It's kind of where, you know, you know, being, you know, only, I mean, silence can fight the establishment to some degree because he stands outside of it, you know. And the so, vigilante aspect. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and still silence works within the law. He just, you know, goads people into pulling on him so he can he can take care of him you know so so i mean it it is kind of like the the liminal space between kind of frontier justice and sort of the justice of civilization is something you see a lot in westerns it's one of those kind of central running themes that you see over and over and over again and it's very much in this film and just in terms of the uh the way that the sheriff and the way that silence um have to solve their problems Um, yeah I always thought the uh, the draw on uh, for self defense was a very cheap but very very clever modus operandi. Like, oh, that you smart little son of a bitch. Well, yeah, that that's but, his... uh, it was really great when he's like, but he goes, "I'm just gonna take this gun off and beat the living shit out of you. How about that works?" And yeah. he, apparently, he can't fist fight very well. <laughs> although he does, although he does eventually get like the upper hand on uh, Klaus Kinski, and he's about to shoot him, but Kinski's smart enough, like, I'm not gonna draw on him. Yeah, yeah, but. Uh... Uh, Again, in contrast to Django, who uh, had a really kind of badass fist fight, if you remember. I mean, this yeah, is, this is really one. I mean, do this next to Django, and um, 
you know, it, it really does kind of clarify what Corbucci is trying to say with this. And, yeah. uh, you know, because Django gets his kind of badass fist fight. The only way that <laughs> silence even begins to um, come out ahead at all is just he picks up a big piece of wood and bashes the, uh, bashes Loco in the face with it, you yeah. know, <laughs> like, I mean, he's losing bad, you know, and, and I mean, the idea that essentially silence is good with a gun, but he's not very good at anything else you know i mean that again kind of punctures that like kind of unstoppable spaghetti western avenging angel figure you know Mm -hmm. right yes i mean it it all boils down to that he's kind of the uh the reality of Django, like what he would really be if he if he was to be you know any any in any way kind of effective as one man against several people he's got the unfair advantages i mean he's a good shot but he's got the he's got the mauser rapid fire i mean he's, he's just got that advantage and without it he's pretty much uh castrated there's almost like a symbolic castration at the end where kinski picks up his gun from his corpse afterwards and knows basically removing him mm-hmm. of his... oh yeah Ooh. yeah um i'll take that i love they shot both in a big pile like it's like oh this is just so brutally honest and grim and oh i just love it when the bad guys win i just love it yeah and you know it's not even necessarily spelled out that they win like it's kind of intended to show that these guys eventually probably be hunted down as criminals at some point and probably killed themselves you know but even then it's left so ambiguous that it's in all the characters you sympathize with are dead (laughs) <laughs> they're they're left hanging and bleeding in a fucking room, you know, like just as pieces mm-hmm. of meat. They're just there to uh, and like the, the just the, pro, the the fucking process of these bounty hunters of Loco, especially where it's like I'll just leave them in the snow for a while and come back and get them later when I you know I feel like cashing them in. Jesus, <laughs> they're Christ. just. I mean, we all know in this these the establishments, people are just dollar signs. Yeah. you use it. You use a tool. <laughs> As long as it happens, and if you, the tool breaks, you throw it away and get a new one. Yeah. And just dollar figures to these people. So I should mention the uh, – we, we, we briefly touched on it, but the uh, happy ending that was made for uh, – it was actually made specifically more for uh, North African markets, apparently. Apparently, in North Africa, Spaghetti Westerns are very, very popular, but as long as it was a Spaghetti Western where the good guys won. So they okay. they shot it for that purpose, uh, especially. And uh, from what I can see, there was no real um, audio anywhere. Uh, I, I read some sources saying that some people found some audio of it eventually and restored it, but you don't see it on any of the DVD editions anywhere. The most popular DVD edition of this has just audio-less version of this and man you can just tell that Corbucci was not into having a happy ending in this at all like he you could tell he's forced into this because it's literally like a two-minute ending where everything just happens and like flash boom bang there's no drawn out spaghetti western duel or anything like that it's just like Kinski's not even killed by silence in in the ending uh it, it's the sheriff who miraculously somehow pulls himself out of the fucking frozen lake and doesn't die of exposure, shows up right. all of a sudden just in the last moment and shoots fucking Kinski in the head. And, <laughs> and oh, oh uh, in silence on his, on his right hand, he has a metal gauntlet protecting his hand, apparently, from, from gunshots. So he was never really injured, guys. There you go. He, he could still yeah, shoot yeah. his gun perfectly. I like they, they took it He was taking the bandages off, and you could find out his hands are actually okay the whole time. I'm like, oh, yeah, never got burnt, never got shot. No, never mind. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I actually, when when they shot his hands, when he was standing in the door, and the guy just randomly off the side shot his hands. That really did. It took me completely by surprise. The ending of the film completely, like I wasn't like flabbergasted or anything like that, but it really did just left like fucking right out of fucking left field. Took yeah. me by surprise. I did not expect that ending, but I was so amazed and happy to see it because this. I mean, it just it takes that film to that whole next level of being its own entity, its own thing. It's it's it just stands above so many other films because of that. Yeah, agreed. This was apparently remade as a Japanese samurai TV series uh, in 1973, which is something I have to find now. <laughs> yeah, that sounds that sounds astonishing. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I watched that. Yeah, uh, according to Sergio Cabucci, um, the actor Marcello uh, Mastrioani gave him the idea of a mute gunfighter because um, he was talking about how he always wanted to be in a Western, but he couldn't speak English. So Corbucci got the idea of, well, what if we shot in Western where the main character doesn't talk at all? We could fucking hire anyone we want and put it in it. And uh, uh, Jean-Louis uh, Trignant, um, this was his only Western he ever did. Uh, French actor. He was known mostly for like dramas, like romantic dramas. It looks yeah. like when I, uh, which uh, clearly um, helped him out in certain sequences in this film. You know, the love, <laughs> oh, baby, jungle fever. Yeah, exactly. Uh, a lot of the snow you see is uh, real snow uh, when you're seeing shots from the actual uh, Dolomite Mountain Range and stuff like that. But if you look at this stuff in town. Uh, and I didn't pick up on this until I actually read up about it. Apparently, all the stuff in town is shaving cream. Yeah, and once it's you know awesome. that, it looks just like fucking shaving cream. Yes, as well. yeah. <laughs> frothy babies. Well, I was—I told Lee before the thing. I was like, okay, there's, there's a town full of shaving cream in Italy. You know, they got babes running around. How many shaving cream like mud wrestling parties did they have after each shoot? Because I totally would. Yeah, like, and then come we on, babe. And then let's have some fun. And then we got extra racist and speculated that the Italians use this as an opportunity to shave their bodies. Yep, it was a giant Guido shave fest. Yeah. All right, let's move on from the racism to uh, DVD info on this. (laughs) The film was uh, withheld from release in the United States, go figure, until 2001 because it didn't have a happy ending. The uh, no, come on, yeah, really, yeah, no, come on, yeah. Uh, I mean, I I say that to surprise me. I thought the alternate ending was going to be for the U.S., so you did surprise me on that one. Yeah, uh, the Fantoma Image Entertainment DVD, uh, which was released in 2001, has an English only. track on it and then of course it has a special edition uh, features of alex cox uh introducing the film and doing a sort of uh, commentary on the happy ending that is provided it was re-released again with a better transfer in 2004 which is the version i own if you go to the U- if you have a region free player you can get the uk version from digital classics which has the italian track on it so uh, that would be something to look for it take- takes away all that weird mormon shit in the in the english uh, version but uh, even then it doesn't really hurt the film the english version i i, I think it still kind of works in-, in a way you know it's an alternate reality western kind of thing um, it's it's fine of course soundtrack by Ennio morricone it's a very kind of haunting. It's it's actually kind of atypical for his stuff. Like it's not the uh, 
twangy guitar fucking uh, stuff that you're used to with a lot of the spaghetti western stuff. It's more kind of drawn out and uh, meditative and uh, kind of pretty in times and kind of sad in other times. It's, it's actually done really well. Box office in Italy was 306 million lira or whatever the fuck. Didn't do quite as well outside of European countries, but uh, that's for obvious reasons. They, they didn't feel like they could sell it. Like uh, The distributor refused to distribute it in the United States, apparently. Because because of that ending, so yay! Uh, what do we think about the uh, what do we think about Klaus Kinski's accent in this film? Con- considering it's not really his voice, and it's not really his voice, right? But you yeah, know, what, what do we think about Loco's accent? I should say, I <laughs> well, he's obviously he's obviously a racist. <laughs> yeah, he, he's obviously a racist. He's obviously a um. Yeah, I, I don't know what to make of it other than uh, it's explicitly saying you know. Uh, white southern guy who doesn't like black people. He's kind of got the southern draw thing going on, and there's I, a little bit of an effeminate kind of thing going on as well. I think. Oh, um, okay. I mean, you could you could kind of read in that. I mean, there's a little bit of that kind of like a, a southern bachelor, you know, a confirmed bachelor in the south sort of thing. You know, the last long bachelor. Yeah, <laughs> kind of, so, sipping um, mint juleps out on his porch in the heat of the day. Are you trying to tell me that the whole spaghetti western has this gay, gay bad guy vibe to it? Really, we've been seeing it <laughs> quite we a bit. Yeah, we we've kind of been getting that. We've kind of been getting that. Like, there, there's a thing. Yeah, be, yeah. I think there's a little, little bit of a you know, little, little gay train going on in the bad guy world of spaghetti westerns. Hey, it for could le- be for lefties. I, I was, I don't know. It's kind of crazy. I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. But um, I did, I did like his accent. I did like his performance in this film and, and the way his accent. I actually, I was like, wow. Costa well, I mean, it, rocking it. It, it's, a, it's a testament to what a fucking great actor he was. I mean, say what you want about the guy's personal life being, you know, a nutcase and a fucking pedophile. Great fucking actor. And even when it's someone else doing his voice in these spaghetti westerns, just, the physical performance he puts forth, <laughs> he just fucking oozes fucking slime. Like you, you just you can you can hmm. see it on screen, you know. Yeah, he's got one of the great film faces. I mean, you know, this yeah. is this is a, not that far removed from Aguirre, right? So uh, yeah. you know, it's kind of the same general area anyway. Uh, you know, Kinski, you know, makes the film really. I mean, the issue with having a film with a mute hero is that you then have to kind of figure out how to tell a story around him. Because yeah. he, you know, he, he can't tell the story himself. So, I think mm-hmm. that's one reason why we do have so many um, strong characters in this, and that you know we have this kind of our locomotive of the film, our, our kind of you know the person who's like driving the plot forward doesn't speak. So you know you have to have like a uh, Vanetta McGee has to have you know more uh, lines to you know, yeah. make up for that, um, and then you know our bad guys kind of get get a little bit more time, and then you also get our secondary hero with the. Um, the sheriff, the yeah. sheriff, who, who gets uh, who gets a lot more kind of depth than you would normally get out of these things. So, I mean, it, it, one of the things that works about the film is just that they decided to go with the the mute hero, because then it suddenly means oh, well, now we have to make everything else has to kind of rise to that, you know, occasion. Well, yeah, then his, his character is kind of built about around the reactions everyone else has to him as well, like because he he's such a just a cold non-entity that everyone else kind of has to to react to him, and you have to get an idea of what he's really like from what, what, how everyone else reacts to him. So it, it works really well. Like it, it's a, it's an excellent idea and don't know necessarily if it's something you can pull off all the time, but uh, yeah. really does pull it off here very well. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that you could, you could like um, 
recapture this mag- magic. I, I mean, you know, one of the things you run into with like some really, really great films that it feels like it's almost an accident that it's this good, you know, mm-hmm. not, not to take away from anybody, but there is this alchemy that's just happening here where Corbucci was at the right level of anger. <laughs> and he had this, <laughs> this, this idea of the mute hero. And then like Kinski shows up. And I mean, you know, if it wasn't Kinski in this, then, you know, you wouldn't, you know, if it, if it was someone who was a little bit more generic, then it probably would not have uh, aged as well. It wouldn't have yeah. been as effective. Um, Vanetta McGee kind of comes in. She gives like such an amazing performance. And uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's gorgeous. And of course, I mean, the racial implications are there and it yep. matters to the film. And, um, you know, it is, it is kind of like all of these things kind of working in concert a lot of which feels like i mean the mute hero seems to be kind of just an idea where you got to make him mute you know that way we can hire this french guy and uh he doesn't have to talk he doesn't have to speak the language so great you know that's it yeah it seems like that's as far as carbucci thought of it and yet it, it works so well in the film you know so yeah paul any final thoughts on this one definitely gonna watch it again i think this film definitely deserves a few watches uh just to get the breadth of what's going on in different implications you can kind of look and see through it but yeah the great yeah. film right on. yeah uh, any uh, final thoughts from you daniel one of the great masterpieces of the genre it's uh, one of my favorites and i'm really looking forward to uh i might have to buy that uh that uk disc and see if i can get the uh see if i can watch this in italian because i think it'll it'll just rise further in my estimation seeing it um because dubbing is just almost always bad right can we just can we just acknowledge that yeah. i mean it's it's one of the weaknesses of the genre is that you know because they're so heavily dubbed and they just kind of look bad they look cheap because of it you know despite yeah. the, you know it's it's hard to recommend these kinds of films to people who aren't familiar with them already because like well why, why does it have to sound like that, you know? But Yeah, uh, the, and the best you can usually hope for with dubbing is that it doesn't come off comical, you know? Right. <laughs> a lot of times it's like, okay, it, it comes off stilted and cold, but not comical. So win-win. <laughs> right, right. Not, really. <laughs> not, not literally the worst is sort of the, the best hope yeah. you can get with dubbing, you know? So, yeah. um, I'm in total agreement. This is a fucking stone-cold classic of the genre. Um, I, I wouldn't say it's the best. I, I know I know there are a lot of people out there that say this is the best spaghetti western ever made. I would not say it's the best. It's definitely a top five. No 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 fucking question about it. It's Carbucci's best film. And if you're not into too depressing films, stay clear away from it because I, I made the mistake of looking at the IMDb comment thread just just for shits and giggles. And man, just the people like oh. I, I hate this film. Why couldn't the good guys win? And it's just like, oh, I just want to strangle you, you motherfucker, because you don't watch films and you don't like films. Sorry, I, you don't. I, I will. I will tell you that after I finished this film, because I watched it for the second time. I mean, the third time overall, but the second time this week, uh, last night, and I uh, put on In Bruges on uh, Netflix. So, <laughs> for all the things that that film, which I know we're going to cover on this podcast at some point, you know, for all of the like depressing shit in that film, that was a step up in terms of like elevating my mood after. Uh, the great silence oh yeah the great silence brings you down but it brings you down in a really great way it, right, it, right, it, right, it, it brings you down in a way to think about what the film is talking about you know it's almost a 70s film before the 70s essentially like just that kind of depressing attitude like it, i i kind of equate it with like uh don't look now or something like that uh with, with donald sutherland i was kind yeah. of thinking about night moves a little bit night um, moves as well yeah very different film but i mean that same sort of um cultural malaise i mean you know it really is 
it's almost like you look at this and go, well, yeah, of course it was 1968 and everything, you know, Nixon was on the ascendance and everything was terrible. And that's just what, you know, this, this, that's, and that's what was going on. That, that's what was going on in Corbucci's mind. I mean, yeah, and Corbucci, be... uh, Corbucci hated hippies, by the way. Like he, he was a left wing yeah, radical. I love him. Who hated yeah, hippies. Which yeah, is why all the villains are dressed in like, <laughs> they yeah. look like hippies, right? You know, because yeah. they hated the hippies. Yeah. Um, so hated banjo. <laughs> <laughs> oh my yeah. god, the great silence versus banjo. You know that would be a yeah. That's a match. <laughs> that's a match right there, man. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 ending of, the ending of the film definitely is is really weird. It's just I, I guess some people don't like it. I love the end of the film. Uh, it it has a really like there's a couple different vibes that I get from that film. It reminds me of. Uh, there's a cheesy old film that I love. It's called Naked Massacre. Comes on one of those Mill Street boxes of a million, and it just has that kind of like everyone dies at the end, and the killer just kind of just like walks away. And it just and the same thing with like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. They just it just walks away at the end, and it's like it leaves you with this really weird feeling that I just love it when I get from film. Yeah. All right, uh, Paul. Where can people find you on the interwebs? Well, you can find me on PA Brew News YouTube, PA Brew News Facebook, and. Uh, paulromaley.com and oil paintings by Paul P. Romaley on Facebook. Yeah, buy his paintings because they're awesome. Thank you. Yeah, uh, Daniel, where can people find you? I'm not selling anything, but if you want to listen to me talk more, you can uh, check me out at oilspaceman.com. I do a lot of podcasts about various things, mostly science fiction. Uh, you follow me on Twitter at Daniel Lee Harper, uh, where I talk a lot about politics and science fiction and whatever else is on my mind. So check yeah. it out. And, of course, you can find all of our links on tmbdos.podbean.com. You can find our YouTube, iTunes, and Facebook links. Facebook group, they must be destroyed on site, is the best place to get in touch with us and leave comments and questions, interact with us, give us suggestions for movies you want to see us review because we're open to pretty, basically anything. And uh, we've been getting a lot of uh, listens lately. I, I've noticed our numbers have really jumped up quite a bit. I'm, I'm kind of suspecting maybe thanks to like Kit Power and some uh, other similar friends in the, in the last little while. We can be kind of, been kind of jumping up in norm numbers, so very cool. cool. And, uh, yeah, of course, no, that's, that's wonderful. Yeah, and of course we're going to have like Kit Power, James Murphy, and uh, uh, Jack Graham on in uh, October. So... Uh, God damn, we're going to be uh, hitting the fucking stratosphere all of a sudden because uh, people who, who are actually smart are going to be listening to our podcast and they'll listen at least once or twice and get our numbers boosted up and stop listening to us after we they see what failures we are, but, you know, it's great. Hopefully they'll insult us a few times, too. Mm -hmm. yeah, I always, mm -hmm. always like that. Reminds me of my childhood with my mom. <laughs> okay, <laughs> moving on. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Daniel and Paul, for joining me. And uh, next week is going to be Once Upon a Time in the West, and we'll be done our initial look at Spaghetti Westerns. Yeah. Yay. Can't wait. Yeah. Bye-bye, guys. Bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. For past episodes, links to the host's other stuff, and links to various podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can also find our iTunes, YouTube, and Facebook links. Please join our Facebook group, as this is the best way to get in contact with us and to keep up to date with what's coming up on the podcast. We also can be found as part of the Oi Spaceman family of podcasts at oispaceman.com, where you can find various sci-fi-themed podcasts about Doctor Who, Red Dwarf, Firefly, and classic sci-fi novels. If you decide to subscribe to us through iTunes, please take a moment to leave us a star rating and a review. Thank you. Drive through.